Can we all just do the mockingbird coup together really quick? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So uh, in uh, 1986 in Compton, California, Dr. Dre, MC Ren, uh, DJ Yella, Ice Cube, and Eazy, and I'm dead serious, uh, formed the seminal act in gangster rap music, NWA. Uh, Rolling Stones actually... uh, ranks them as 83rd on their top 100 groups of all time. Now, when most people hear of NWA, they think of uh, gratuitous and filthy lyrics, and uh, they, are, they are there, and, uh, but, but they believe that that is why they were banned from the mainstream. And that's not true. And it actually misses the profound point uh, that made NWA great. You see, prior to NWA, rap music for the most part was about hey, have a good time, you know, the party's great, we're dancing. You know, it was uh, light lyrics like uh, the Sugar Hill Gang. It's what we would have called here at Mockingbird a theology of glory. Um, (laughs) uh, NWA, though, uh, what was great was that they were actually the first group to describe life for young black youth living in inner city Los Angeles. And they described it how it really was. And that's what got them banned. They shed light on police and gang brutality. And they revealed to many in suburbia just how dark and violent our world is. They called a spade a spade. They were what we would call, just to kind of carry out the analogy, the theologians of the cross. Uh, not really, but uh, anyway. <laughs> but our speaker today indeed is a theologian of the cross. And this is what makes him amazing. Many of us have listened to Dr. Rosenblatt for years on the White Horse Inn. And I met him personally last year at the International Academy of, of, of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights. And one of the great things about this man is that he... Um, is not only a theologian of the cross, but he is a defender of the faith. Uh, He is an apologist and and, uh, really points to the historical truths of Christianity. I believe he was quoting Francis Schaeffer last year when he told us all in France, he said, please, please do not present Christianity as first and foremost as helpful, but as true A man in history on the third day physically rose from the tomb. And that's what makes him great, is that in everything he says, he points us to the wonderful, objective, historical fact of Christ and him crucified. He also, like NWA, has no problem calling a spade a spade. I remember we were chatting with a group of uh, students and somebody in the group mentioned that one of their parishioners was talking about God seeing his heart. And Rod said, yeah, and without the imputed righteousness of Christ, all he sees is cholesterol and sin. Rod keeps the main thing the main thing, and that is Jesus Christ crucified for our transgressions, Jesus Christ raised for our justification. And on behalf of Mockingbird, it is my pleasure to introduce to you all once again, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. I thank you for the welcome, for the invitation. Um, I uh, hope that, uh, I said to a couple of the Mockingbird guys, I hope that I'm not going to bore you out of your ever-loving wits, so let's get right to it. We begin with a scripture that's probably familiar to all of you, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Notice Paul calls this the gospel. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, 
then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to an aborted fetus, he appeared also to me. The Reformers believed that the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's cross and blood alone, was not just roundly and soundly biblical. The doctrine is not just the main doctrine of Christianity. They did believe that. But it is Christianity. You've often heard Luther cited at this point, the doctrine of justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. Luther believed that this doctrine was and is the gospel. There are a lot of other doctrines, of course, but they are not called in the New Testament the gospel. The doctrine of the justification of sinners before God on the basis of Christ's cross is called the gospel. Now today I want to re review with you a few main points of this central doctrine, but I want to do it in a particular way. I'm going to try to defend the thesis that in a day of a tidal wave of subjectivism, the true way of salvation, more technically the justification of the sinner before a holy God, is something totally outside of you and outside of me, outside of our hearts, outside of us, period. This will be familiar if you're White Horse Inn listeners. I apologize, and I'll try not to bore you. Paul calls what he wrote here in 1 Corinthians 15 the gospel, and there's not one single syllable of it that mentions our hearts, our commitment, our decision, our surrender, our growth, our self-crucifixion, or anything else. We are, it seems, completely missing in it. Noteworthy by our absence. Now given our age, this just sounds strange. It doesn't talk about us. Some of you know that I'm a college professor. One time I gave an essay exam in a particular course and one student, I think a psych major, wrote an extended paragraph on how he felt about the subject on which he was writing. I put a marginal note on his exam and said something like, I could care less how you feel about this. You don't have time on an exam to waste words writing about how you feel about the subject. He, of course, came in to confront me later for my heartlessness. And we got it ironed out. But it was as if I was the first prof who ever fired a shot off his bow for writing autobiography on a college exam. How could a professor criticize a student for writing something about himself? Well, this is exactly what I'm facing week by week and others are too. The government propaganda warehouses we used to call the public schools have trained thousands of students to believe that what they feel about a subject takes precedence over the content of that subject. Uh, if that happens to interest you, of course, uh, I recommend C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, which is a marvelous attack on what we in the States would call progressive education. But what it, how it comes out is that it's very difficult for today's young students to stay with you in a discussion over content. Everything in them wants to switch in a very short time to how they feel about the subject under discussion. And they've been rewarded for this by the schools. If somebody like me calls them up short for writing about their innards, it's like throwing them into ice water. They're utterly shocked. It's never been done to them. Quite the opposite. They've been rewarded for it. It is part of the gospel expounded by Paul and then rediscovered in the 16th century that sinners do not receive forgiveness because of any merits on our part, but freely, gratuitously, and solely for the sake of Jesus Christ's suffering, shed blood, and death. You're familiar with the passages in Romans 3, later part, 
and in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as if it were righteousness. The reformers argued against their Roman opponents that this biblical doctrine of gratuitous justification before God is first of all true and second of real comfort to troubled consciences. And really, after all, what good would some message be that comforted our troubled consciences if it were not first of all true? The reformers had the right order. First true, only then comforting. If you're a listener to the White Horse Inn, you know exactly where I'm going here. If you're not, just follow along for a few minutes, see whether I can convince you that the so-called gospel of today's subjectivistic age is nothing but a false gospel or no gospel at all. Since we're at the center of things, I think you'll agree this is worth some sweat and time. It's central. First, the background of the gospel is the fact that the law rightly accuses every one of us. If I just concentrate on the second table of the law, my neighbor and I, then like the Roman Catholic thinkers of the 16th century, I imagine that by loving my neighbor, I satisfy the law of God. Well, I'm just not hearing the depth of the law's thunder against me. It's the first table that does me in. Summed up by the rich young ruler as he stood in front of the Lord Jesus, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. I don't do that. And neither did the rich young ruler. Um, tragically, he answered, I've done all that since I was a kid. So the Lord took it up to the fourth power. You don't do it. I don't do it. Not that I know you all or I've followed you around or that I can peek into your minds or hearts. The Bible tells it to me about you and it tells you about me. Not even as Christians do we th do these things of the first table. Not enough to stand before perfect judgment. But now I want to get to the core of the central doctrine of Christianity and try to defend that it's objective rather than subjective. It's the way it sounded in the text I read in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's get to it. It's only in the strangest of ways that one could say that the first disciples of Jesus after his resurrection went out and preached their experience of him. Now, if ever there was a group of men who could preach their experience of Jesus, it was those earliest disciples. But instead, they went out and announced to anyone who would listen that Jesus was the sin-bearing substitute for the sin of the world. He had died a substitutionary death to pay our debt for us, and his death and resurrection were, with nothing added, sufficient to justify anybody in their standing before God. True, these men had experienced seeing Jesus, talking to him, watching him eat after he'd been raised from the dead. Peter says, we have not delivered to you cunningly devised myths when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John said, we have touched him, handled him concerning the word of life. But they did not go out and preach, have an experience of Jesus. Have an experience. It is truly one of the ironies of the Christian message that as the Christian keeps looking outside of himself or herself, looks to the Christ outside of them, dying for them on the cross, that the emphasis today on Christ's work in the believer is kept from ruining everything. The emphasis in revivalistic American evangelicalism is much more on Christ in me than it is on Christ outside of me, dying for me. That is, in, it is, it's to major in minors if you compare it with the New Testament text. Not to deny it, but to say what the New Testament presents primarily is Christ outside of me and dying for me and rising again for my justification. 
To get these in the wrong order or have put the emphasis on the wrong syllable is to have the whole Christian message sunk into a sentimental internal mysticism. Christ does, uh, the New Testament doesn't stress Christ on the throne of my heart or the throne of your heart either. It stresses Jesus Christ is dead, buried, risen, then seen by many witnesses, then ascended and exalted. The gospel invo involves an objective historical event, not an internal existential one. It is news about what God did in the death of Christ one afternoon long ago. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Well, what about the revivalist emphasis on Christ within me, renewing me? Amazingly, that was the same emphasis that Rome was pushing against the reformers. Um, and there is a linkage between the revivalist and Rome, though he would deny it. But as soon as you get into the difficult questions, some of them will realize, if I had lived in the 16th century, I would have been again, you guys. That they're getting it. In medieval Roman theology, the claim was that the sinner is justified, that is, changed from an unjust individual into a just one, by God's subjective, sanctifying work of grace in his heart. This is what Luther was wrestling with. The Reformers held that the Bible claims the sinner is justified by God's objective work of grace in Christ, in Christ outside of me, dying for me. In the Reformers' reading of St. Paul, the claim was clearly, they thought, on Christ satisfying the demands of the law for us in his life, then dying and satisfying justice for us as our grand substitute. In other words, the Reformers thought that the Bible presents a doctrine of the justification of the sinner before a holy God based completely on what Jesus did on the cross outside of us, then this is reckoned to us, thank you Fitz, or imputed to our accounts as if it were ours. One writer put the matter, the essence of Rome's error was to confuse the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the heart I've been born again, with justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ. In striking contrast, the gospel sets forth Jesus' objective bleeding and dying and the imputation of that to the believer's account as our only righteousness before God. The sinner is accepted because Jesus was and is accepted by God as God and in the sinner's place. He was crucified for our sin, raised again for our justification. Peter's statement, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Nothing, absolutely nothing within the sinner makes you or me acceptable to God. Not even our faith in Jesus. We are accepted in the beloved. So, is the locus of our justification outside of us? Christ dying on the cross, or is it within us, experiencing the new birth and being improved until we're actually changed into just people? This is what the fight was over. If the former is correct, the sinner, covered in the blood of Christ, will one day see the holy God and hear the judgment, and this is a judgment called in the New Testament a crisis, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy master. If it's the latter case, the sinner will face the holy God with nothing but his or her love for Jesus or good works or quality of contrition or Christian growth in holiness to try to set that before the holy God as the basis for entry into heaven. Good luck. The reformers believe the one view is genuinely Pauline and the other was no gospel at all. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his essay on the reading of old books, recommends that we read books not from our own century. Not that they didn't make their own errors, but at least they won't be the same errors we're doing in our century. There'll be different errors. 
what characterizes our generation? Well, if there's anything that characterizes our day, it's that we are a psychotherapeutic generation. We are totally comfortable in thinking in categories that have to do with whether something meets our needs. In prior generations, it was called eudaimonism. And to translate into street talk, God exists in order to meet my inner needs. But brothers and sisters, the Bible does not present to us a God who exists in order to meet our inner needs. He is the Holy One of Israel who created us and has every right to demand our allegiance. We are on trial before him, not the other way around. We are created to honor and worship and obey him, the High and Holy One, and we have not done so. If you say to me, but Dr. Rosenblatt, surely we have to believe the gospel. I'll answer, yep, we do. It's going to take a miracle. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, thee and thy household. The Reformation category is subjective justification. But remember, brothers and sisters, in a subjectivistic generation like ours, your hearer will immediately want to, be, want, uh, to begin thinking and talking ad nauseum about his or her believing more than about Jesus and his blood. That's what a subjectivistic generation does. It latches on to the subjective and runs with it. So, the reformers lived in an era in which they were terrified concerning the consequences of their sin. Our generation is not. The reformers wrote as if they needed a divine savior, a resurrector from the dead. We write as if we need a new self-affirmation for today, or maybe a BMW 700. They searched the scriptures to see whether the scriptures offered a mediator. We search the scriptures for tips for happy living. Luther and Calvin searched the scriptures to dig down deep into the mystery of the God-man and his blood shed for sinners. We search the scriptures for verses that aid us with marriage, family, kids, and work. Uh, Jacob quoted what uh, I had quoted from Dr. Schaefer years ago. I plead with you men, these were all, this was before Schaefer was well known, but he was in front of the youth leaders of all of America down in San Diego. I plead with you men in our day, always present the gospel first of all as true, not as helpful. Boy, was he right. And in the same way Schaefer pleaded with us all, I plead with you, please do not think that the question about justification being based on Christ's objective death and blood as the basis for our justification before God is like the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? If the reformers were right, one position is a really gladsome gospel, compared to which all others are messages of justification by sanctification. Now somebody's going to ask me afterwards, don't you believe in the Holy Spirit's work in the Christian heart? Did Luther and Calvin deny the Holy Spirit's work of renewal? Hardly. But they thought that to change the order on these two, first justification based on Christ's blood, then the inner renewal, was to change Christianity itself. Or to put it slightly differently, a change in this order amounts to the loss of Christianity. Both reformers had scads to say about the Christian life, and they used verse after verse after verse to say it. Now, if some of you are Wesleyans, I'm sorry to tell you, but John Wesley was simply wrong when he said of Luther, no man ever born since St. Paul better understood the doctrine of justification than Luther. And no man was as ignorant of the doctrine of sanctification as the same man. It was after a stagecoach ride into London. Some of you are going to still come to me and ask, but doctor, you speak as if there's no stress in the New Testament on living the Christian life. You just won't be able to stop yourselves. 
It's like St. Augustine. You won't not be able to do it. Huh? You can't not ask. I might answer you bibliographically, refer you from the Lutheran side to Hordern's Living by Grace, Gerhard Ferdy's chapter in Five Views of Sanctification, maybe Harold Senkweil's book, Sanctification, Christ in Action, or if you're from the Reformed side, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a lot of things by Sinclair Ferguson, The Christian Life, A Doctrinal Introduction, or his Grow in Grace, works of Huckama, uh, The Reformed View of Sanctification, and so forth. But remember, the 21st century American culture, secular culture, is totally concerned with the self my inner needs, my inner life, and turning the focus from Christ and his shed blood to what he accomplishes in us is frighteningly close to the spirit of our age. Worldliness, I think, in our age is this. How can I get it to talk about me? I really like talking about me. So I'll smile as you ask me and try to shift the conversation from Jesus to your experience of sanctification. I'll know you are being so modern as you do it. And I'll know you want to talk about yourself instead of Christ. In our century, we Christians have got to remember that one of the ways the Reformers spoke of our sinfulness was what I mentioned the other day. The incurvitas in se, the backbone bent over, till our whole horizon is our navel, self-worship. It's like with a baby. The whole horizon is the nipple. Huh? Our whole horizon is our navel, curved in on self. And one of the ways they spoke of being justified was God supernaturally straightening out our backbone, maybe for the first time, to look outward to Christ dying instead of inward to self, renewed or not renewed. We are bent of spine and need him to turn us outward to Christ outside us. If you're in a church that only talks about Christ's cross when there's some kind of evangelistic meeting, you need to find a new church. If your steady diet from the pulpit and Bible study centers on you and your needs, and your supposed moral progress in walking the Christian walk, you need to find a new church. Find one where the glory of Christ and his cross informs everything that they do. Find one that acts as if the Bible is actually about Christ and not about you, because it is. Don't be seduced by churches that talk a lot about Christ as an example, someone for you to emulate. That's not talking about Christ. When I say talking about Christ, I mean his office of prophet, priest, and king with emphasis on priest, dying. Find a church that talks about Jesus and Jesus shed blood. And find a church that has this as its subject for Christians, too. Not just for non-Christians in some evangelistic meeting. We Christians need to hear every week about the sufficiency of Christ's blood to save even us. Faith in that nude, without works, apart from works. Find a pastor who believes that the shed blood of Christ is so great in its effect that it can even save a Christian. I'm blessed by a pastor who believes that the blood of Christ shed is of such power it can even save a professor of theology. Now what can you and I say to someone who insists on holding to the necessity of some kind of inner renewal of the self as necessary for justification. They're really Roman Catholic whether they know it or not. Or people who take justification as sort of out of course, the milk as it were, and want to move on to the meat. Perfectly terrible use of a verse. All I know of is to take them to the great indicatives. You were buried with Christ in baptism and his, into his death and raised again. Uh, Luther said that to believe this day by day is a way of practicing sola scriptura because what you look at in the mirror is going to say back to you something else. Luther said if you look to the self and daily examination, what you're going to find inside is sin, darkness, 
failure, death, and damnation. Just the opposite of what you went in there to find. So Luther said, this is a great place to develop the habit of believing what Scripture says. God buried me with Christ in my baptism, raised me again in newness of life. So that's how it is. What about the Christian who's seemingly bored with justification, but obsessed with sanctification? I don't know if there's an answer to this one, other than reading and reading and rereading the law, as Paul did to his fellow Jews in Romans 2. You who have the law, have you not read the law? Go out and do what the law commands, nothing less. Here's a place where this thing about journals, I think, is of help, not in the way most people think. Keeping a journal. I've discovered it's been turned into a verb, journaling. I journal, you journal, we journal, I have journaled, you have journaled, we have journaled. Americans to concentrate even more on ourselves. Keeping a journal. Okay. Keep a journal of how you perfectly obeyed God's written law each day, each hour. Actually write down specific verses of the law and then write how you perfectly obeyed those aspects. Be merciless on yourself. Remember to include also all your pure motives, not just the acts. Write down daily and hourly how you always had your neighbor's good in mind but never your own. In the front cover of it, you might write a couple of verses as overall guides. Something like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Or, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Maybe the catalog of the works of the flesh in Galatians. Those who do such things will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then each day, prior to writing about your great improvements for that day, you might reread those verses uh, to remind you that anything less than total perfection will keep you out of heaven. Have a nice day. C.S. Lewis once remarked that he never discovered the depth of his sin till the day he vowed to be more virtuous and less of a cad to people. He was horrified for the first time at the depth of his sin. You say to, me, say to me, Rod, all this sounds like sola fide of the Reformation. I answer, you're right, it is. Nude faith in Jesus' cross and blood. And solely for the sake of that, sinners like you and me receive free forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And at judgment you will hear the verdict, innocent, not guilty as charged. If sola fide is the case, then that which is necessary for our acceptance by a holy God has already been done by God himself. One afternoon, about 20 minutes walk from the center of the city of Jerusalem. And it took place there, not in our hearts. On a wooden cross, not in my psyche. He met all the obligations before the bar of justice for us, and by a perfect life and shed blood, all of this is imputed to you as if it were really yours. And God is both the just, both just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. And we can't add a thing to it, not even our piety. Nothing needs to be or can be added to it. You try to add to it and read what happens in Galatians. We are not to add to that. We are to confess that God's saving work has been done completely outside of us one afternoon. Many evangelicals will admit that God alone saves in Christ, but imagine this saving work is somehow inside of them. Nope. The righteousness that saves is outside of us. As Bunyan put it, it is the righteousness which resides with a person in heaven which justifies me, a sinner on earth. It is normal Christianity to continually confess that we are sinners and we have no righteousness, save that which is in Christ our mediator. The blood of Christ can save even a Christian. 
And if we just can't seem to get away from thinking about our self-surrender and everything else, then sola fide is the only true crucifixion of the self. Nothing empties a man like sola fide. Why? Only in turning away from concentration on the self to concentrate on the one outside of us and who bled for us and for our sin is the true crucifixion of the self. Here and only here we admit the depth of our destitution. We confess before justice that we have nothing with which to pay our debt, not even our believing. To trust Christ's blood and cross for everything is to rely only on love, mercy, and forgiveness unfathomable. To despair of any supposed inner virtue or inner growth or any of that. One guy said one time, Christianity is not the move from vice to virtue. It's the move from virtue to grace. Faith alone is a humbling of man in the dust, a dependence upon God to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Reformation folk should never speak of faith plus self-crucifixion. We should speak of faith in Jesus as self-crucifixion. In Luther, said that it, Luther said that it is roundly and soundly biblical to say that toward God we have all the free will in the world to choose our path to hell. Choose your poison. But the, the contrast is 1 Corinthians 15. And everybody's welcome. And it's all free. And it's outside your psyche. And it was done 2,000 years ago by somebody else. It means you get in for free. All right, I'd like to close with a prayer that I used to tell my Westmont students to find, and it was before the day of the Internet. Uh, those of you Episcopal will recognize it. It's called the Tadeum Ladamus. And I told my Westmont students it was a prayer that they should find because they, did, they weren't in it. It is... It contains not one single first-person pronoun. I'll close with that, and then you should have a hymn text, and I'm going to try and ask the audio guy to play a hymn that has nothing of you or me in it either. Um, a marvelous hymn. God forgive me for saying I don't like anything written after the 17th century. Um, once in a while, somebody gets something right. Uh, so I'm going to try to ask the audio guy to play that, and you can listen to it or sing to it. You should have the lyrics called Thine the Amen. But first, the Tadeum. Let's pray. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship Thee, the Father everlasting. To Thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. To Thee cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. The noble army of martyrs praise thee. The holy church throughout all the world doth acknowledge thee, the father of an infinite majesty. Thine adorable true and only son, also the Holy Ghost, the comforter. Thou art the king of glory, O Christ. Thou art the everlasting son of the father. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, thou didst humble thyself to be born of a virgin. When thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Thou sittest at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that thou shalt come to be our judge. We therefore pray thee, help thy servants, whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. Make them to be numbered with thy saints in glory everlasting. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine heritage. Govern them and lift them up forever. Day by day we magnify thee, and we worship thy name ever world without end. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. O Lord, let thy mercy be upon us as our trust is in thee. O Lord, in thee have I trusted. Let me never be confounded. Amen. All right, can we hear that hymn? Is that going to work?
Okay, we have some time for some Q&A. Nick? Hello. Um, hi, you're, you're down here with us now. Um, I was wondering if you might clarify um, what you were saying about justification and sanctification and the potential of a difference between them. Um, it sort of sounded like you were recommending um, something like a reformed idea of just having the order right and also what I would call the Ferdian idea of sanctification being more about sort of the spelunking process of us growing accustomed to our yes. justification. I'm all for that sort of theme. I'm on that side with Gerhard. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that the church is having so little effect is because we have spent way too much time on what isn't central in the Bible. And for the most part, it comes out as the remaking of me, and usually guys have tried that, women have tried that, it's never worked very well, and they vote with their feet. They just leave. We took a survey one time, years and years ago, within Lutheran synods across the board. And what we discovered was that most of our people in Lutheranism in America were functioning Roman Catholics. The clergy did pretty well, but the laity, when you got to asking the question about if you were to die tonight, do you know what would happen to you? We got perfect Roman Catholic answers. Uh, are you going to be in heaven? I hope so. Uh, if you get in, how would you get in? Well, I was president of three congregations. My wife and I sang in the choir 25 years in various places, and I always taught Sunday school, and so did she. Perfect Roman Catholic answers. In other words, to reverse this in any way is to lose everything. Um, if somebody walks away, I want them to walk away because of what Paul calls the scandal of the cross, that you simply have made yourself guilty in Adam, you've confirmed it every day of the week, and the gospel is not, you know, uh, remake yourself. It's that it took somebody else to die. In fact, God had to die for you to fix it, and he did. And to have somebody say, I'll hear none of it. And I say, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, good luck. Jews look for signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And I think pastors assume that this is all understood well by their laity. In Lutheranism, we discovered that it wasn't at all. <laughs> Not at all. So um, I think the younger generation will come back if there's something worth coming back to. And that something is a person. Nailed to a cross, solving our problem of death. And it's the only something that's worth getting out of bed for. Do I want to teach sanctification? Yeah, later, yeah, yes, yes. But um, if that's the, the diet from curriculum and pulpit, I don't blame somebody for walking out. I would. Uh, Rod. You've been talking about uh, how to engage, well, I mean, I, I want to ask you, actually, how would you engage with uh, the agnostic, And because you've been talking about... Um... I'm going to talk about the incarnate God rising from the dead. All right. In other words, I'm not going to do... <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to do Anselm's ontological argument. I'm not going to do that, if I have to, but only if I have to. Luther and the Lutherans start in the middle of the story. We start with the incarnate God, then we work this way, backwards and forwards, unlike others. And I want to go right to John 1, if I can, and say, look, this is open to your access. You can decide the, the religious truth question without faith at all. You can discover 
whether he was raised the third day. You do it as a historian. Whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John qualify as history, not word of God. You discover later their word of God. But to begin with, are they at least good historians? And if he was raised again from the dead, it vindicates who he was and the message that he was talking about that he had to die for us. Um, God has visited this planet in person and given many, Luke says, infallible proofs of who he was. I'm going to go for the incarnate God in history and see if I can argue that he demonstrated empirically, factually, who he was. And then I'm going to press. That guy has a claim on you because he made you. And he's going to solve your problem if you'll bend the knee. Rod, it's been wonderful hearing you, and this will be a wonderful talk to have on the blog, I think. Sort of uh, Mockingbird Christianity 101. Uh, I appreciated the gospel in wake of the experiment in uh, failed mysticism. I used to lead the Zhao Zen uh, meditation group at Kenyon College. And um, I didn't just have to read Ferdy to find out that sanctification of the self-improvement variety was kind of laughable in my case. Uh, that was affirming, but I already knew it and was able to appreciate the gospel for all the reasons you've talked about, and you've made that very clear. I want to ask you about something a little different. Um, you gave these brilliant talks at the Advent a few years ago. You hear about them a lot, I'm sure. They've had an impact on a lot of us. He spoke about fathers and sons, and Rod had an amazing father. And in those talks, which you can find online on New Reformation Press, he tells many inspiring and um, insightful stories about his father and uh, how he, well, many of us who listen to those talks learn something about God from those talks about your dad. And what I want to ask you about, at the beginning of those talks, you said, I kind of like Aquinas, and he's not big in the mockingbird world of thought, okay, just as a disclaimer. You said, I kind of like Aquinas when he talks about analogy. And then you proceeded to do exactly that for three days. And I'm under the impression that most Lutheran Christians, at least, uh, you know, ministers, are uh, convinced that you can't talk about the gospel clearly by using analogy. You can only do it by proclaiming the theological truth. And yet, obviously those talks bore an enormous amount of fruit for the gospel. And at Mockingbird, I think, and many of us do, obviously if you read our blog, think that analogy is a very helpful vehicle, as well as proclamation, for conveying and explaining the gospel uh, two people in its objective truth, yep. two individuals in the way that the parable of the prodigal son does in Luke 15. Will you talk a little bit about that, about analogies, what you think about them, the tensions, the way in which the word can be proclaimed without being just Christ died to save sinners? Yeah, um, we are in Lutheran seminaries uh, not introduced to that portion of Aquinas on analogy. It just isn't part of the curriculum, but I think that's too bad. Uh, what we end up deferring to in most of our seminaries is stupid sermon illustrations instead. Now, I wish I could do analogy better. With my dad, it just flows. But I have to be parasitic on somebody like Lewis, who understood English better than I do. I have to use his stuff. Um, but it seems to me that on this, Aquinas is right, that we, whether we acknowledge it or not, are looking for analogy somehow, and we already know it's not going to be perfect. We already know that. Filmmakers get this. Musicians get this. Pastors don't. But we weren't trained in it either, at least Lutherans. We weren't trained in it. But it's powerful brew. Uh, one time Lewis, 
uh, I think it was Reflections on the Psalms, said if I had to choose between the propositions and the pictures, I'd take the pictures. And I was fighting Boltman, and I thought, oh, heavens, that's not going to help me at all. But in the broad span of things, I think I knew what he was getting at. Analogy is powerful, especially analogy of rescue. Well, look at Spielberg. If you ever saw Spielberg, that, that uh, amazing stories episode, flying that hit B-17 B back home, it was like Memphis Bell. Uh, but it was in Spielberg's amazing story. Spielberg's a Jew. But he gets what Tolkien called eucatastrophe. That turn in a fairy tale when everything is dark and you don't see the turn coming, and it comes, and he said, if the writer does this well, it's almost like pain. The goodness of what's happened, the rescue, is so good and you didn't see it coming, tears come into your eyes. Analogy does that. Bad sermon illustrations don't. Got one right here. Hey, Rod. Hi. Um, I have more of a clarification than a question. Um, and probably everybody in this room is going to roll their eyes because you all get it. But um, as you're speaking about you know, these other churches, these bad sermons, you know, denominations and whatnot, um, just like on a really base level, are you saying that their salvation is in question? No, I think we'll see people in heaven that we never expected to be there who be belong to cults and never listened to the doctrine. I think we'll see Christian scientists there who never listened, never got it. I mean, there'll be scads of people there who believed in Jesus in spite of their priest. Scads of them. No, um, this whole thing's going to turn on the person and work of Christ, and there'll be people who believe it, and their priests didn't. C.S. Lewis said one time, it used to be that we were ashamed to talk to our priest because of how little we believed. Now we're ashamed to talk to our priest because of how much we believe. Uh, as a student of the inn for, for many years now, Student of, of, of the Inn, White Horse Inn, and, mm -hmm. and what you guys are doing and talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I found myself on a number of occasions uh, in deep conversations with uh, the under 30 crowd and put into practice much of what I've learned, especially focusing on the historical resurrection and how everything that a Christian would talk about or believe flows out of this. And if you can't fathom this, then you know, you're, you're missing the point. What I found... Um, that is a little disturbing, and I, I would like you just to elucidate on your experience with, is there's a sort of numbness that postmodernism has brought to even the concept of truth to where I find them nodding. Yeah, okay. Oh, wow, that's neat. See you later. And they go away. And I'm curious if, if you know, your experience has been similar and, and how, how you've dealt with that. Yeah, uh, I... I suspect in many of these cases um, that what happened happened in the family and it happened early and it was burned into the chip and the story is pretty ugly. In other words, the blank stare that I see in so many of my students is in the realm, I think, of the clinical psychologist. I don't have a recipe for getting through it or getting through to it. All I've got is law and gospel. But some really bad things were done to them before they were six. And they stayed. Uh, no child deserves that. But it's many times what's happened. Now the gospel is one of the most wonderful stories around and I can reach back into or try to into the image of God where there was no father at all in the home or it was a mess to try to reach back into the archetype within of what a father is. But there I go to my friends who are clinical psychologists to ask for help because these kids never deserved to be in the position that they're in, the psychic position that they're in. Um, on my street in Irvine when I used to live there, 
every kid dressed in black. Every appendage he had was pierced. Um, they were in mourning. And 360 degrees of their compass, from family to church, if there was one, to culture, to everything, was all darkness. They couldn't have spelled nihilism, but they were in it up to their armpits. And that's tough for the, for the preaching of the gospel. But if there's any hope at all, it's in this cross gives life to the dead. And you were killed in your home and you didn't deserve it. You deserved much better than you got. I wasn't surprised when the men at the Advent said, can you just tell stories about your dad for about an hour? We need them. If not our own dad, somebody's dad. We, a friend of mine who's a clinical psychologist, was a World War II fighter pilot, said one time, we imagine the Western world is going to fall because of the lack of fossil fuel. World, Western world is going to fall for the lack of good fathers. He thought it was that central, and he convinced me. Um, today and yesterday, you've said a lot of things about leaving a church that where the gospel is not clearly proclaimed. And my husband and I, we've found that very helpful and freeing, um, but it also puts us at sort of a decision point with the church that we're at now. Um, <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> is risky in many ways. It's, it's freeing, but it's risky because, um, well, at least two things that I'd like you to speak about a little bit more. One being your own heart condition if you choose to leave and the self-righteousness that goes along with sort of the feeling that, well, we knew they didn't have it quite right there and we, we have things a little more sorted out theologically. Um, but also just the community. Um, we have just wonderful friends at this church and that's why we've been there. Um, and uh, just, a, it's complex, like the feelings of sadness that they're hearing a muddied gospel every week, and just kind of the feeling of, it's almost like you're divorcing those yes, friends. Yes, it so is. So if you'd speak a little to yeah. kind of what happens if we take your <laughs> freeing advice. Yeah. I, I can't make that one easier. It's awful. We, you, the number of letters we get from Whitehorse Inn saying we left our whole community that we'd grown up in, been nurtured by, but it wasn't preaching the gospel to us. And we had to go somewhere else, and we thought we were going to die in doing it. I think it's that awful. Divorce is a good uh, analogy for it. I don't have a simple answer for that. Um, it's awful. Just awful. And then you've got to find some place that actually does what it's called to do. And that's not easy. Um, it's awful. I can't take the edge off that. Um, it's awful. What about the self-righteousness question? Well, I wouldn't worry too much about it. If you've evaluated the doctrine, you don't, you don't have to worry about the analysis of the self anymore. If the apostolic doctrine isn't there, that's all you have to worry about. Then start going to your yellow pages or the internet. Uh, you don't have to analyze your motives. Christ died for your lousy motives. Uh, the devil take the hindmost. Lewis wrote one time, uh, the question was, what would the truly humble man look like? And he said he'd look free. Get out of your innards. Find a church where the apostolic message is represented in pulpit and curriculum, and the devil take the hindmost. Christ died for it. Final question right here. Um, I had a question about the uh, subjective, objective thing as it pertains to law and gospel. Because and, I think, like a lot of people here, I, I sort of had you know, two conversions. There was one conversion where I became a Christian, mm -hmm. and then another conversion where I came to actually understand the gospel. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think the way that I came to understand the gospel and continue to believe the gospel is through this objective, just being told over and over and over and over again, mm -hmm. it is finished, it's been done, you don't need to do anything. Uh, completely objective. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, for me, the way that I came to give up on the law as a path to righteousness was really completely subjective. It mm -hmm. was through, like Lewis said, it was trying so hard to be, to, mm -hmm. to live up to the Sermon on the Mount. 
and realizing that it was making me hate myself and hate God. Yep. And saying that this just isn't working. Yep. And, uh, and that's kind of what I want to also then say to people who, who are sort of Christians but don't, you know, it's weird to say are Christians but don't really understand the gospel. It's like, well, just go live by the Sermon on the Mount. Go try and do it. And, <laughs> and so I guess a comment but a question there, that, that, and you talked about this subjectively, you know, journal. Keep a journal about all your peer motives. That there is a... I mean, would you agree there, there is a subjective element, maybe not to understand the gospel, but to understanding the law, at least, by, by sort of realizing the, the pain and the hatred and the, all the stuff it stirs up within you? Because I've had a lot of Christians say to me, you know, when we talk about the law, they say, well, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to believe, I'm just trying to do what Jesus tells me to do <laughs> and to believe that I am that I am a new creation, that I mm-hmm. am what the Bible tells me I am, that mm-hmm. I am capable Good. of doing what the Bible tells me I'm capable of doing. And I want to say, but how does it make you feel when Jesus says to you, uh, lust is the same as adultery, or mm-hmm. anger is the same as murder? Like, let, let's get out of your head for a second and get into your heart. Like, what, what does that actually do to you as a human being? But they want to they stay in the realm almost of the objective when it comes to the law. Does that... Makes sense. Yeah, uh, God bless them for staying with the objective. I'm not against the subjective here. It's just got to be in the right order. And if the objective gets lost, which is the primary thing in our culture, to lose it to the subjective, then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. But if it's Tolkien, Eucatastrophe, Narnia, you know, a lot of things that, that really get to the innards in a way that uh, propositions don't, fine if you don't give up the propositions. Fine. It, it's what lawyers call corroborative evidence. Couldn't stand on its own, but it can corroborate something that's true, and you know that on the basis of objective evidence. Uh, there's a wonderful subjective life that many, many of us were introduced to in Narnia. But Lewis never denied the objective. Um, Just remember, all of you, we are in a suffocatingly subjective generation. That's the ditch that awaits us first, is into subjective. And the gospel doesn't do well there, because the gospel is historical, it has to do with the judicial verdict, all those propositions. Um, but I don't think it's anywhere necessary to deny the subjective. Uh, I think the historic Christian faith can do it, as Lewis did it, in a way that no other story can. Dorothy Sayers said this is the greatest plot line ever given to the mind of man. And you would have to dedicate yourself as a priest to make it boring. But she said the priests of the Church of England have actually pulled that off (laughs) and made it boring. Uh, This is not a boring story. Um, Anyway, for what it's worth, thanks. Let's give a big round of applause.